passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. She had had a long, hard, tough day at work. The meeting didn't go the way she had wanted it to, that she had expected to, but she had put on a facade of bravado. She had braced herself. She delivered the results that she had come to expect, her coworkers had come to expect. And afterwards, she was congratulated by everyone in the room, the rest of her team. But all she wanted to do was just go home and shut off her brain. Of course, at the end of the workday, she realized that was just the beginning for her. She still had to shuttle one kid to dance practice. The other kid had his first basketball game, and she had promised some alone time with the other one. When she walked into the door to the chaos, she felt her fuse growing shorter and shorter and her temper growing hotter and hotter. All she wanted was some time to herself. They were running late for church again. No matter how much planning they did to get out the door in time, something seemed to always come up. They could feel their blood pressure rise as their kids refused to put on the clothes that they had picked out for them. And while they didn't want to be at each other's throats, they took out their frustration on one another. They drove to church in an awkward silence and steel determination to not, lo- not let anyone know the chaos that they were simply just putting on hold. Her parents were supposed to be arriving at any minute, and they decided to use every last second of those minutes to continue their argument about their finances. When her parents arrived, they tried their best to pretend that everything was fine, but the stiffness from their kids showed otherwise. He was at his wit's end. It was like the school teachers were speaking of a completely different person than the one he knew when it came to his son. The teachers and, peer, and his peers lauded his friendly and selfless attitude, his excellent academic work, but all he knew of his son was the stranger who was moody, silent, and cold to the rest of the family. A personal one. I remember when I was 16, I had recently become serious about my faith. My family was on our way home from a family vacation, and after spending several hours in the car, tensions were running high. Imagine that. I decided to take Colossians 3, verse 2 to heart, to set my mind on the things above. And so I remember exactly where we were. We were on Highway 34, heading back to my parents' house. I decided to start memorizing Ephesians chapter 3. But my parents and my little sister wouldn't stop talking to one another, and finally I snapped. I remember my my sister's words to me like it was yesterday after I yelled at her. You know, for someone who wants to follow God faithfully, you're a real jerk. (laughs) Can anyone relate to that? You don't like it? But when you're honest with yourself, you can see that you have a tendency to do a great job of clothing yourself with Christ when you're surrounded by other people. But when you are with your family, it's a completely different story. We have a tendency to be short with our family, to be rude to our family, to be rough around the edges with our family, that we don't take seriously the charge to clothe ourselves with Christ when we are surrounded with those that we are closest to. 
This morning, we're continuing our journey through the book of Colossians, building on the foundation of the past few weeks. Last week, we spent some time looking at this charge to clothe ourselves with Christ in Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. And we are to put on the character of Christ in the Christian community. In those verses, Paul tells us that one of the biggest battlegrounds of our faith, one of the most important areas of our lives where we can clothe ourselves with Christ is in the church, in our relationship with people who are very different from us. And this morning, Paul continues that same thought. Instead of focusing on the battleground of the church or the Christian community, now he shifts gears and he focuses on the battleground of the family. Last week, we saw charges to put on compassionate hearts, patience, humility, meekness, kindness, more. And those all certainly apply to the family, don't they? Now, during our journey through the book of Colossians, we've been expanding our view of who Jesus is. At the beginning of this book, Paul takes some time to remind us of the greatness of who Jesus is. He paints this big, vast, cosmic picture of Jesus as the sovereign Lord of the entire universe. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul starts in Colossians with this picture of Jesus as the sovereign Lord of the entire universe. And now when we get to Colossians chapter 3, our verses this morning, Paul is not just saying that Jesus is sovereign Lord of the universe, he's also sovereign Lord of your family. He is the ruler of your family. We started several weeks ago in Colossians with this big, mighty, powerful picture of who Jesus was and who Jesus is. A couple weeks ago, we transitioned to application. We focused on how we are to live in light of the greatness of who God is. And this morning is, is no different for us. It continues this charge, this charge for each of us to put on the character of Christ, what we saw last week. But here the focus isn't on the church, the focus is on your family. This morning's passage is short, but it is powerful. And while all of Scripture is applicable to us, this is especially clear for us to make application from. Paul spends one verse of each of our verses this morning talking to wives, and then husbands, and then children, and then parents. And his his focus is basically saying for the family to truly live as a Christ-centered family, then the charge to clothe yourself with Christ is one that each person in the family must take seriously. Indeed, that's our primary thrust this morning from this passage. We must be clothed with Christ in our family relationships. We must be clothed with Christ in our family relationships. As we will soon see, this passage in each of those verses talks about four pieces of clothes or four garments that are worn by Christ. And the family is to dress themselves in each of these pieces of God's character, of Christ's 
character. But before we look at each of these different verses, I think it's appropriate for us to mention just two truths that we have to grasp to fully understand this passage. First, Colossians 3, verses 18 through 21, is a very radical passage. But it might not be radical in the way that you think. This passage was one of radical liberation from the culture of the day. The Greeks and the Romans, women and children, were treated as property, as slaves, and not as persons. Men had all the power and all the authority in the family, and essentially they were like gods in the family. So, in non-Christian versions of these household instructions, which were relatively common throughout the ancient world, they started with Aristotle. In those non-Christian instructions, you would see all of the duties assigned to the women and children, and all of the rights assigned to the men, the husbands, and the fathers. There were no rights given to children and women. There were no duties given to men. And so here in Colossians chapter 3, in this passage we're about to read, we'll see that this is a radical declaration of, of equality of personhood, a radical declaration of equality for children and for women in the family. They were the same inherent worth as their husband. There is no inferiority for them when they are approaching Christ, for Christ bids them to come, just as he says to the man of the household. And if we miss this liberating freedom, if we miss what Paul is saying in these verses because of their original context, then we miss out on some of the power of family relationships in God's new creation. Second truth that we should recognize this morning before we look at this passage. Second is this, the pri- this passage is not primarily about wives, it's not primarily about husbands, it's not primarily about children, it's not primarily about parents. It is primarily about Christ and his lordship over the family. Everything in these verses is written in this, everything in these passages is written in the truth that Jesus is seated on the throne. We can't understand this passage without first understanding uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, of the greatness of who Jesus is. And rather than rooting these commands in nature or in logic, as was common in that day and age, Paul makes frequent mention of Christ. The focus of this passage isn't simply about husbands and wives, parents and children, but it's about the believer and Christ. To miss out on that is to miss out on what God wants to do through these words. Remember what we said when we began this morning, the the family is one of the most important battlefields of the Christian's faith, one that God cares far too much about for him to neglect. And so he gives each of us a high charge, a high calling in these verses. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. We're going to look at each of these verses individually. Colossians 3 verse 18 says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Our first garment is addressed to the wives in families. It is simply this, to be joyful, excuse me, to be willing to joyfully put others first in the home. That's essentially what Paul is saying here when he calls on women to submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. He's saying, wives, 
Be willing to joyfully put others first in the home. And when I think of this passage, I think of my wife, Crystal, and this describes her to a T, someone who puts others first in the home. And many of you husbands would say the exact same thing about your wives. And so to even mention this can be somewhat insulting because after all, what do we think that they are doing? Paul's word here to submit is indeed controversial. But to understand it, we have to first understand what submission is in general. The Bible talks about submission quite a bit, both in this passage and in others in the Bible. We see from the New Testament that submission is a part of the Christian life. All Christians are called to submit. Romans 13 tells us that Christians are to submit to governing authorities. Titus 2 tells, uh, tells slaves that they are to submit to their masters. 1 Corinthians 16 tells us that Christians are to submit to their church authorities. 1 Corinthians 7 tells us that both husbands and wives are to submit to one another when it comes to intimacy in their marriage. Ephesians 5 tells us that in the church we are to submit to one another as a part of the body of Christ. If we were to go even further, the New Testament makes it clear that submission is a key part of even becoming a Christian. To be a Christian is to submit to Christ as Lord and Master. In fact, that's what Colossians is all about. The application of Colossians is all about Jesus as Lord and Master of our lives and therefore submitting to that truth. It is unthinkable to have a salvation that isn't linked to submission to the lordship of who Christ is. We cannot accept Jesus as Savior without also accepting him as Lord. The Christian life is one of submission. Another truth from the New Testament, submission is not lifeless obedience, but is instead voluntary and joyful. Paul's words here are significantly different than his counterparts in at least two ways. First is this, the word submits for most people in his day and age was far too soft. Most of his contemporaries would have said something much stronger because the word submit allowed for far too much autonomy in their worldview. They preferred the stricter word obey. There isn't a choice in the matter. Wives are to obey. But Paul says submit. Another thing that's interesting about this is the word submit is tied to the phrase fitting in the Lord. The focus here is not on coercion, but a joyful, though admittedly difficult, giving of self in the marriage. Third, submission leads to the flourishing of the gifts of both the husband and the wife. In premarital counseling, I've been asked uh, many times, what is the difference of gender roles and what does that look like in uh, marriage? And every time I'm asked that, I, I just refuse to answer. And some would say, well, it's because you're a chicken, and maybe it is. I refuse to answer because I think it looks different in each and every marriage relationship. When it comes to submission, this wife, wife's voluntary and joyful giving of the self is when it's present in the marriage both the wife and the husband will flourish in their gifts. It allows both the husband and the wife to excel in areas where God has gifted them. A good husband will recognize his wife's gift and does, do all that he can to make sure that she is empowered in those areas. And so if your wife is more spiritually mature than you are, 
then one of the ways that you can encourage her to use her gifts is to empower her in that area. If one is better with the finances, the same thing. If one is a better leader or or thinks better in those kind of ways, then making sure that you empower her in those areas. This is not a form of, of domineering or of ownership from the husband, but is instead an empowerment in areas of strength for the wife. When I think of this call uh, to submit, I I think of of one particularly powerful passage in the Bible. The best example of submission in the New Testament and in the Bible and human history is is just Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 talks about Jesus' earthly ministry. It talks about all that Jesus has done, and it tells us that he is the paragon of submission to his Father's will. Philippians 2 says that here. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the uncreated second person of the Godhead, as one who is equal in power and in nature with the Father, chooses in the story of salvation to submit himself to the plan of his Father, and models for each of us what it means to submit willingly and joyfully in our lives, to give of ourselves willfully and joyfully in our lives. We could talk about this a lot more. Just one final note. Paul declares that this submission is ultimately about what is fitting in the Lord. It's ultimately about submission to the Lordship of Christ. And so while this charge to joyfully give of yourself in the marriage is applicable for those who have Christian spouses and those who have non-Christian spouses, it never means to give yourself in a way that is sinful. I was just talking to a friend the other day, and she was sharing the the struggles of her uh, brother and his wife who had recently decided to enter into an open marriage where they could pursue relationships with other people. And and her sister-in-law, after a few months of this, realized that she just couldn't do it anymore. Even though she wasn't a Christian, it's a perfect example of something that is sin. We don't have to give ourselves in the pursuit of sin. We must obey God rather than man. You see, this calling of being a wife could not be higher. It is to clothe yourself with the character of Christ in the marriage, to follow the example of Christ in the marriage. Just like Jesus, who joyfully and willingly gave of himself to do the exact same thing in the marriage for a husband and for family. And so our first verse here is a, is a charge, is a challenge for the wives to joyfully give of yourself. To put yourself, or to dress yourself in this beautiful garment of Christ. Paul turns his attention to husbands next. Verse 19 is addressed to husbands and their own Christ garment. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
The garment for husbands to don in family relationships is this, to be willing to sacrificially die for others in the home. To be willing to sacrificially die for others in the home. The late preacher Charles Spurgeon famously said, the best way for you to live above a fear of death is to die every morning before you leave your bedroom. He wrote this in the context of the, the gospel's call for us to each die to self, something that we all must do daily. And in the context of the marriage, in the context of the family, this charge is the exact same. Husbands are to follow the footsteps of the love of the Savior when we sacrificially die to our own desires, our own wants, our own needs, to die to ourselves for the sake of others in the home. As far as I'm aware, in all of the writings about family in the first century, the New Testament is the only place that commands a husband to love his wife. Only place in all of the writing that we have available where husbands are commanded to love their wives. What we see as a foundation for marriage today was really actually unheard of in that day and age when this was written. Indeed, this verse is far more controversial, far more radical uh, here than the previous one because it elevates the status of wives from property to person and lowers the status of husband from demigod to person. Exactly the way that it should be. Paul's word choice here for love is significant. There were many words for love in Greek that communicated the various facets of love, but only one was used in the New Testament to describe the self-giving love of God for his people. His love for his people throughout the ages. It's this word that you've probably heard before, agape. In all of Paul's writings, when he uses this word agape, like he does here, it is almost always a response to the love that God has shown to us. And so Paul's charge is for a husband to have that type of love for his wife, to, have a con- to make a conscious decision to love and to serve and to protect his spouse. It's a choice to love someone no matter how you may feel or how lovely that person may seem to you in the moment. The New Testament describes this self-dying, self-sacrificing love in several ways. Let's consider just a few. First, this type of love that the husband is supposed to show to his wife is an active love. It is not an emotion. It is a commitment to act. It is this love that is used to describe our commitment to other Christians in 1 John chapter 3. By this we know love, we know agape, that he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for others. In response to the love of Christ, we are to love others. It's not just enough for us to say, I love you, but it must be active. This love shoulders the responsibility to care for, to nurture the family, even if it comes and when it comes with great cost to self. It is this love that gets up when the baby is crying in the middle of the night so the wife can sleep. It is this love that lets your wife go out with friends every now and then for rest and fellowship. It is this love that invests into the relationship with time and energy. This is an active love. Second, this is a sacrificial love. 
This love comes with great cost to self. In Ephesians chapter 5, we see the sacrificial love described in relationship to Christ's love for the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul's drawing a parallel between what Christ did for the church and what husbands are to do for their wives. Just as Christ gave himself for the church, so husbands are also to give themselves for their own spouse. They are to model the sacrificial love of Christ to their spouse, to their children, to the world that is watching them. That's why we say that husbands should be willing to sacrificially die in the home. They should die to self, their desires, their wants, their preferences, more. And they should do it daily in order to truly love their wife. Finally, this is a love that is an unbreakable devotion. Romans 8 describes the unbreakable devotion Christ and his love has for us. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ's love for us is an unbreakable devotion. Nothing will ever separate us from that love. And that is the love that is to be on display from husbands in the house. This is not a love that fades with age or with disease or deterioration. It is an unbreakable commitment, a devotion to one's life. In his book, A Promise Kept, a seminary professor by the name of Robert McQuilkin, I think I've mentioned this before, writes about his journey with loving his wife after she is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. It leads him to leave one of the most prestigious positions in the academic world so that way he can care for his wife full time. His wife does not know him anymore, and yet he sacrifices all to care for her. This is a love that says, in the midst of anything and everything that life can throw our way, to quote Paul from 1 Corinthians 13, this is a love that endures all things. It is unbelievably costly to love in the way that God charges husbands to love. It requires a daily death to self so that you may love your wife with greater and greater completeness with each and every passing day. The calling for the husband could not be higher. He is to clothe himself with the character of Christ in the marriage. Following the example and modeling Jesus' own example and laying down his own life for his wife and his family. And just as the first verse was a charge to wives to dress themselves with this garment of Christ, so also this is a, a charge to husbands to dress themselves with this garment of Christ. Paul continues uh, with, a, with a charge to children in verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. As I was thinking about this verse this past week, I think the most profound 
part of this verse is not the charge because obedience to parents is something that is commonplace in, in basically every parenting book out there. It's not even the charge to do this because it pleases the Lord. That's rooted in the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother. What I find most fascinating about this verse is that it is even included in the first place. By including this verse and this charge to children in the context of this is how we are to live out our faith, this is how we are to clothe ourselves with Christ, in the context of Colossians chapter 3, to even include this verse, Paul is saying that it is possible for a two-year-old or a 12-year-old to glorify God just as much as it is for a 32-year-old, a 62-year-old, or an 82-year-old. Children are given the extreme privilege and responsibility of glorifying God. God elevates the charge of the worth of children by giving them these expectations. And so for a five-year-old to be clothed with Christ, this is how they are to live in the family. For the 18-year-old who was clothed with Christ, this is how they are to live in the family. And for the 22-year-old who still returns home, this is how they are to live in the family. Obedience here is rooted in more than just following what mom and dad say because they said so. Here we see that obedience is tied to the glory of God. And so that's our third uh, charge this morning. Obeying, obeying parents is one of the most important ways that children can, can glorify God. Obeying, obeying parents is one of the most important ways for children to glorify God. And so when your parents say no more TV for the night, the response isn't to get mad that you can't watch another episode of Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. That's something that I can relate to right now. But to listen and to respond with obedience. And when you do, God receives glory. When your parents say that you can't go to a friend's house until you finish your homework or you can't go on a spring break trip with your friends, your response, this is important, your response will directly give God glory or will rob him of glory. Your response will directly give God glory or will rob him of glory. This is not just true for Christian parents. God has instituted all authority over us, whether it is Christian or non-Christian. It's true when it comes to the government that we are to obey government leaders who are not Christians, and the same thing comes for parents. When we obey the authority that God has placed over us, we are indirectly stating and confessing that God is king, that Jesus is the one who reigns over every facet of our lives, and we trust that he knows what he's doing. How we respond to parents will directly give God glory or will rob him of glory. Do you see why this passage is such a high calling, a high charge for children and teenagers? It's not just a passage that is focused on wives and husbands. You don't have to wait until you are out of the house, having your own family to make your faith your own. You can make your faith your own right now. You can glorify God right now. You can clothe yourself with Christ right now. Children, teenagers, dress yourself 
in this glorious and beautiful garment. And Paul closes with one final verse, verse 21. He turns his attention to parents. Fathers, and by extension, just parents, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. There are many verses in the Bible that tell us the purpose, the thrust of parenting, but this verse gives parents, no matter your life stage, one vital charge. And this context is this, parent to encourage a hope and trust in God. Parent to encourage a hope and trust in God. This verse is not comprehensive when it comes to parenting like the rest of them, but it does give us some guardrails on the twisting, winding, sometimes treacherous path of parenting children toward Christ. Parenting is a stewardship. If you've ever been with us uh, during a baby dedication, parents come forward to commit themselves to raising their child, to, to follow God to the best of their ability. And perhaps you've noticed when we have those, some of the language. Throughout those dedications, there's an intentional focus, there's an intentional confession that we make the parents say that they don't own their children, but instead that God has entrusted it to them. For only a season. You see, in God's infinite wisdom, He has entrusted eternal souls into the stewardship of men and women for a brief season. What an impossibly high challenge! What an impossibly high calling! So, how are we to parent? Well, this passage gives us two thoughts. Let's start with the second one first. Paul ends with this charge, lest they be discouraged. I want to start with that one. The opposite of discouragement is encouragement. So we are to parent to encourage. But perhaps more importantly, based off of the context of what is being written here, it's not just to encourage our children, but to encourage them into who God is. To encourage a hope and trust in who God is. There are some forms of discouragement that are actually good in parenting, that are right in our parenting. It is good to discourage a trust in wealth in your children. It is good to discourage an identity in your looks or your ability as a parent. The context of this passage is not just discouragement in general, but specifically, don't discourage your children from trusting and hoping in God. One of the most painful, heart-wrenching books I've ever read is called The Pastor's Kid. It's written by Barnabas Piper. Some of you may know of his father, John Piper. John Piper has played a large role in my formation as a Christian when it comes to my life and my thinking. And so I was interested in reading this book about, uh, written by his son, And in this book, Piper's son, Barnabas, lays out some of the difficulties of being raised in a pastor's house. He shares many of the stories uh, that he has experienced of other children of pastors who have left the faith because of their father's ministry. He shares his own discouragement, his own bitterness toward God, his own actions or relationship toward God that have been caused by his father's engagement in ministry. When I read that book most painful, heart-wrenching book I've ever read, 
Crystal was eight months pregnant with our, first son, with our son, Silas. And I remember finishing it and falling on my knees and just pleading with God that that would not be the case for us. That we would not discourage hope and trust in God and our children. From that moment, Crystal and I have made the thrust of this verse, this idea of encouraging our children toward God, really to be part of our purpose statement as parents. The one thing that we want to do with our parents is even now when they can't grasp the abstract concepts of God, salvation, sin, we want to do whatever we can to help our children to trust, hope, and love God and by extension the church. It's a commitment on our part to encourage our children to love and hope and trust in God. And your, your parenting is going to look undoubtedly different. Your context is different. You have different children who respond in different ways. But the importance of your children and the importance of your parenting is to help them to hope and to trust in God because that's a crucial piece of parenting. And so it's in that framework that Paul charges us in the beginning of this verse to not provoke our children. What he means by that is when we interact with our children, we will indirectly or directly encourage them or discourage them in their hope and in their trust in God. We can discourage them or provoke them when we respond with overly strict legalism on one end of the spectrum or on the other end of the spectrum, too much libertine freedom. How will we parent goes hand in hand with our previous verse. Children must obey because they are called to glorify God and obeying their parents. But parents must not put unnecessary roadblocks in the way of their faith. What a high calling for parents to clothe themselves with this character of Christ when they relate to their children. So parents, dress yourselves in this beautiful and glorious garment. We must be clothed with Christ and our family relationships. But even as we can nod silently to that charge, we're also left overwhelmed by the magnitude of this charge. How on earth can we joyfully give of ourselves each and every day? How can we possibly die to self each and every day? How can I obey my parents when it seems like they don't understand? How can I encourage my children to a greater hope and trust in God? It's only through the grace of God. When you fall short, when you fail, do not lose hope. Do not despair. Remember, the, the same God who gives us this high, what seems to be impossible calling here in these verses is the exact same one who before called us holy, beloved, chosen. Not because of anything that we have done, 
but because of what Christ has done for us. The same God who calls us to put on the character of Christ in these family relationships is the same God in Galatians 3 who already confesses that we have put on Christ. That we are already clothed in Christ. So do not despair. Do not give up hope. Now for some of you this morning, you may be wondering how does this passage apply to you? You may be hearing this and it's difficult and uncomfortable. Perhaps you've struggled with childbearing in, in the past and you would love to have the chance to encourage children to hope and trust in God. Perhaps you are currently single, whether you have never been married or you're divorced and you wish you could have the chance of modeling Christ in a marriage. Perhaps you have children who have left the house and your parenting past is filled with regrets. So what is this passage have to say to you this morning. Remember, this charge to clothe yourself with Christ in the most intimate of your relationships still stands. Whether it is in friendships or with siblings or with your parents who live across town. It will look different, but the root charge here is the same. To clothe yourself with Christ in our closest relationships. Second, and I think even more important, I think that this text hopefully grows our love for our Heavenly Father and our older brother, Jesus. Psalm 34 tells us that God is near to the brokenhearted, that He cares for the crushed in spirit. And so when you fail as a mom, as a dad, as a husband, as a wife, as a son or a daughter... We can look to our perfect and gracious Father. And we can look to His perfectly obedient Son. Not just as an example, but for assurance of what He has done for us. Clothe yourselves with Christ and your family relationships. Let's pray. Jesus, we do ask that you would help us to trust in you. To model you in our families. To help each and every one of us here. No matter the context. No matter if we come from estranged families. Broken families. Families with kids in the home, kids out of the home. Help us, God, to clothe ourselves with Christ and to enable others to do the same. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.